Good morning. It is a joy to be with you again as we are opening this book, uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And we've been calling it the Gospel's Greatest Hits, kind of like an album, because really collected here truly are the best hits of Scripture, the overarching themes of the Bible. Now, when I was a teenager really getting into music, um, I got into, uh, you know, the thing that we would buy at that time was CDs. Now, over at Green Trails, Dan Grissom said it was uh, records or, or albums. I have no idea what those were. I thought they were Frisbees uh, growing up. But, uh, but, but they, they, it was the same kind of concept, right, that, that you had, you would, you would have to buy this album and all the tracks of that album were on there. And the thing was, is, is if you didn't like a track, you would then just skip to the next track. And so there were always certain favorite tracks, and then there were those ones that you sometimes skipped over uh, because you just really wanted to hear the popular ones. But one of the things that I found as you go back and you listen to the album from beginning to end is that albums and, and artists, musicians put these albums together for a reason. They usually have themes that are woven throughout. And so what we're doing with this album of the Book of Romans is we're looking at all the tracks. We're listening to all of them as we, as we walk through this book. And so thus far, we've looked at uh, that first track was introducing the good news in which Paul kind of lays out the major themes of his letter. Then we looked at track, we listened to track two, which talks about the righteousness of God in the face of human wickedness. Track three was last week as we looked at the example of Abraham. And this weekend, we're going to be listening to track four called Peace, Hope, Reconciliation, and Life in Christ. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to go ahead and open up to Romans chapter five uh, with me. If you are using the Pew Bible, that is going to be on page 942. And I want to encourage you to have this open because of the fact that um, we, we want you looking at this a portion of the letter with us. Because what we've seen as we've been going through and listening to these tracks is a couple major thing, themes. First and foremost, what is, what is the gospel? Secondly, who is it for? And thirdly, how is it supposed to shape our lives? And specifically, as we come to Romans 5, we really get into that last point. How does this good news about Jesus Christ actually shape our lives? We're tipped off to this because he begins chapter 5 with this big word, therefore. It's one of the first of several important transitions within this letter. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at specifically how does this good news shape our lives. But I think that before we dive into the text, it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord God, we give you thanks that it is your delight and desire to reveal your will to us. That you want us to know you. You want us to know about your love. You want us to know about your plan for the world. And you want us to see how this good news actually does transform our lives. And so, Lord, as we come before that word this morning, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, open hearts and minds to receive your word. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Several years ago, when I made the decision to transition away from college ministry and into pastoral work, I remember sitting down at a coffee shop to talk with a friend of mine. 
And uh, he was asking me the question, he said, you know, so why have you decided to, to leave college ministry? I mean, you love college ministry. You've enjoyed working with these students and, and being able to be on campus and share the gospel there. Why did you make this transition? There were several answers that I gave. But one of the answers that I gave is I said, well, part of the reason why I want to transition into pastoral ministry is because unlike college ministry, pastoral ministry allows me to disciple people at every stage of life. Whereas college ministry is kind of this, this short snapshot of two to six years, depending on the program and the student, being a pastor allows me to disciple people at every stage of their lives, ups and downs, good times and bad, uh, little kids to senior citizens, I mean, you name it. We get to disciple people at every step of their lives. It sounded like a pretty good answer at the time. But the reality is, is that I had no idea when I said those words how true they would be. Because since I have become a pastor, I have had to disciple people at some very, very difficult seasons of their lives. Since saying yes to this ministry, I have stood on the front lawn of a home and told a mother and father that their son is not coming home because he took his life. That since becoming a pastor, I have given last communion and spoken final prayers to people who would go home to their Heavenly Father not 24 hours later. Since becoming a pastor, I have sat at the bedside of parents who are expecting a child only to be told that that baby did not survive, that that child would not be coming home. We disciple people at the most difficult seasons of life, not just the good times, but also the bad. Times of great joy, but also times of intense suffering. And it's in moments of intense suffering that we often hear these very, very difficult questions asked. Why did this happen? Is it something that I did? Am I being punished? Where was God? And those questions can be difficult to answer. They can be hard to answer because they are so big, because the pain is so close and so deep and so raw. And the question is, how do I respond? And that's why I give thanks to God for chapters like Romans 5. Because in Romans 5, what we learn is we learn how the good news of Jesus Christ matters in the midst of suffering. Paul begins chapter 5 with these words, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not Put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, in these opening verses of chapter 5, Paul highlights that we receive three gifts from God in the midst of our suffering. Three gifts which come through that good news of Jesus Christ. And the first gift that we get is the gift of peace. But not just peace generally, but specifically peace with God. He begins by saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he uses this big word justified, and, and the question is, well, what does justified or justification mean? Well, actually, it's a legal term. 
To be justified, to receive justification means that as you stand before the judge and the charges are read against you, the judge declares you not guilty. That as you stand in that courtroom afraid of the punishment that is going to come because of what you have done wrong, God looks at us and he says, not guilty, no punishment, no sentence, no vengeance, no retribution, you are free. Not guilty, made righteous. Paul says we have this because of what Jesus has done, that Jesus actually took our place, that his goodness, his perfection, his innocence is given to us and he instead takes the punishment. And because of that, Paul says, you now have peace with God. And this matters when we are dealing with suffering because sometimes that question does arise. Is it something that I've done? Is that the reason that I'm experiencing this pain in my life? Is that the reason that I have entered into this difficult moment is because God is out to get me. God is there to punish me. And what Paul is saying right here in these opening verses is by no means. No We experience suffering because we live in a broken world. We experience suffering because our world is not as it should be, because our world is indeed under a curse, but the suffering that we experience isn't because God is out to get us. Because what Paul says at the opening of this chapter is he says, you've been justified. You are not guilty. There is no punishment for you. I love how John White puts it in his book, The Fight. He says this, he says, Your justification is a heavenly event, for your name is now recorded in the not guilty annals of heaven. He says, your justification is a heavenly event, that for all time you are declared not guilty. You are free, you are innocent, you've been washed by the blood of Jesus. He has taken your punishment and there is no condemnation for you. And so in the midst of our suffering, Paul writes that we actually have peace with God. That our suffering is not some divine punishment handed down from a vengeful deity, but that we have been forgiven. There's a second gift that Paul highlights. He says that we also have hope. I love what he says in verses 2 through 5. He says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says that because of the good news of Jesus Christ, because Christ has died and has risen again, we have hope. Now, hope is one of these words that I think has actually become very cheapened in our culture today. That when we hear the word hope, we kind of translate it in our heads into wishful thinking. That that's what hope really means. Like, I just bought a a lottery ticket. And then we say, well, you think that's going to work? Well, I hope so. It's wishful thinking. And then usually when people say, yeah, I have hope, we say, okay, you know, nice wishful thinking. This is optimism, right? This is really positive thinking. But no, that's not what hope means. Certainly not the hope that Paul is talking about. 
In fact, when I think about the hope that Paul is writing about, I think about one of my favorite film series. Uh, there's one of my favorite film series is The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I just love those movies because they do a really good job of actually taking the books and, and translating it for film. Um, and in one particular uh, moment in that series, in, this, in the, the final movie, The Return of the King, uh, two of the main characters are trapped. Uh, it's the wizard Gandalf and the young hobbit Pippin. They're trapped in this city that is being besieged by the enemy. And they're overwhelmed. They're outnumbered. They've lost most of their soldiers. And it's in that moment that Gandalf says something to Pippin that I think epitomizes what it means to have this kind of hope. So I want you to watch this. I love that scene because of what Gandalf says. He says, death is just another path, another part of the journey, one that we all must take. But then he gives Pippin this amazing vision of what's next. But more than what Gandalf says, what I love is the look on his face. The look of someone who's seen it. Someone who knows it deep in his bones. It allows him in that moment that when the enemy is banging on the doors of the gates to smile, to take a deep breath. And the effect that it has on Pippin is contagious. Pippin is just like that. That doesn't sound so bad. Again, Up says no. No, it doesn't. See, when we talk about hope, that's really what Paul is talking about. It's this deep assurance of what is to come. I love how New Testament scholar Robert Mount says it. He says, hope is not superficial optimism, but the confident assurance of that which will surely come to pass. That's what hope means. That's the word that Paul is using in this moment. And the reality is, is that's not just a hope from a fairy tale movie, but it's a hope that we can have confidence in too. Why? Because we've seen it. 
I love what verse 10 says. It says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. See, what he's saying is he's saying, because Jesus' tomb is empty, we know that death is not the end. That the hope that we have is not simply superficial optimism. But that because Jesus' tomb is empty, because he rose again in time and in space, in human history, we know that there will come a day when the great gray rain curtain of this world will be peeled back. When all will be turned to silver glass. And there will be white shores and a far green country unto a swift sunrise. That's the kind of hope that even when the enemy is banging down the door, even when we are staring death in the face, we can take a deep breath and smile. We can say, I know this is not the end. And that hope can give hope and courage to those around us as well as they realize that this hope is not just something, some kind of wishful thinking, but it is real. It can be clung to. It can be felt in the bones and seen in the eyes of those who believe. Jesus gives us the gift of peace, but he also gives us the gift of hope. There's a third gift that Paul says Jesus gives us, and that is the gift of love. We come to one of my favorite sections of scripture, quite honestly. It's so, such a, so dear, near and dear to my heart that we actually used it to, to choose the baptism verse for my youngest. Here's what he writes. He says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, in the midst of our suffering, when we're tempted to ask the question, where is God? Does he still love me? Paul's answer is a resounding, yes, he does. He loves you deeply and more profoundly than you can possibly imagine. It's a love that you can feel because he says in verse 5 that the Holy Spirit pours out this love into our hearts. The, the verb there for poured is, is used in a verb tense that means it's always pouring. It's a constant flow. It's an overwhelming waterfall and flood of God's love. He says that God's Holy Spirit goes with you so that even in the moments when suffering hits and pain comes, you can know deep in your heart the love that God has for you. And that if you're in the midst of suffering, all you need to do is ask, Lord, show me once more your love. Help me to feel it in my heart. Because the promise of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is pouring it out into us day by day. But it's not just a love that we feel. It's actually a love that we can see. Because even in those moments when we don't feel love, when we don't feel the love, when we want to know, does God really love us? Paul says this, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In those moments when we're tempted to ask, does God still love me? We can point to the cross and say, yes, he loves you that much. 
So much that he was willing to come into this world to rescue you. That he left heaven with all of its joys and pleasures, with its supreme absence of suffering, and he stepped into our pain. He bore it upon his shoulders. He was willing to be nailed to a cross that we might be forgiven. And he rose again to show us that my love is unbreakable. Not even death can stop it. Not even your pains and your sufferings can overcome it. My love is unending. See, in those moments when we're tempted to wonder, does God still love me? Is he still here for me? We need only point to the cross and say, there is how we know. For it is there on that cross that we see what redeeming love looks like, the lengths that it's willing to go. To death, to the grave, and beyond into resurrection and eternal life. Peace, hope, love, all these gifts given to us in the midst of our sufferings. I love what John Stott says about the power of love. He says, to be sure of the love of his or her parents is almost indispensable to the healthy emotional development of a child. To be sure of the love of spouse or friend is marvelously conducive to human fulfillment, but to be sure of God's love brings even richer blessings. It is the major secret of joy, peace, freedom, confidence, and self-respect. Why? Because what Paul then goes on to say is he says, because this love is turning back the curse. This love will reverse the fall. That's why the rest of chapter 5, he goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He goes all the way back to that moment when things like death and pain and suffering first entered the world. That moment when Adam and Eve, in their pride and in their arrogance, disobeyed God. They took the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they unleashed suffering and pain and death into this world. Paul goes all the way back there, and he says, this love will overturn it all. That's really what Romans 5, 12 to 21 is all about. It's this amazing comparison between Adam and Christ. And one of the things that he highlights is if you were just to go through those verses is that through Adam, many things entered into this world which contribute to the suffering and pain that we experience. Sin and death, condemnation, um, the growth of sin and disobedience. He says all these came because one man disobeyed, but then he says, but now think about what has happened because one man was obedient. Because Christ came and obeyed, what he says is that many will be made righteous. Many will experience eternal life. That we have been justified. That grace increases and abounds. And that we too now are able to obey God with a joyful heart. See, what he's saying is he's saying as bad as that curse was in Adam, the gift in Jesus Christ is greater that though through Adam death came to all through Christ, life, not just life now for the 80 years or so that we have on this earth, but life eternal is available to every single person. That even though Adam brought death into this world and condemnation and judgment through Christ, we can know that everyone, regardless of who you are or where you come from, it can be forgiven. That they can experience that grace in their lives. That it's a gift that God joyfully gives to any. Anyone who asks, he says the gift is so much greater than the curse. 
And the peace, the hope, and the love that we experience now is simply a foretaste of the day that will come when that curse will be overturned once and for all. The day when Christ will come again and wipe every tear from their eye and there will be no more death or crying or mourning or pain any longer for he is making all things new. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in the midst of suffering because we know that suffering doesn't get the last word. Death does not have the last laugh. Our eternal life, the gift given to us through Jesus, is a promise that is assured and that we will see when he comes again. And that allows us to be present for people in the midst of their sufferings. It allows us that when we see people in pain, we don't shy away. That when we see people who are suffering, we don't turn our backs. That when we ourselves feel pain in our lives, we can know the hope that we have. And we can bring that hope and that peace and that love to those who desperately need to hear it. That we can speak to them about the truth that this is not the end. I think that's why Paul writes in another letter, his second letter to the Corinthians, these words. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. May you know that even in the midst of suffering, the glory of God is present. That even in the midst of suffering, you have peace, hope, and love. That all these things are gifts given to us through the good news that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. It's in his name that we say, Alleluia. And amen.